All right, we are beginning this morning with uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery, uh, L.M. Montgomery. And if you are familiar, uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery was the writer of Anne of Green Gables. And I'm reading an extended quote, not from actually Anne of Green Gables, but from, I think, the fifth book in the series. I'm getting the yes, the fifth book from my wife, who happened to read this uh, section to me about a couple of weeks ago when she was reading this. And I heard and I thought, that is, we got to read that for this section talking about uh, David and Jonathan. I must be getting back to the light, announced Captain Jim. I've enjoyed this evening something tremendous. Uh, Captain Jim is uh, a guy who runs a lighthouse where uh, Anne is living. You must come often to see us, said Anne. I wonder if you'd give that invitation if you knew how likely I'll be to accept it, Captain Jim remarked whimsically which is another way of saying, you wonder if I mean it, smiled Anne. I do, cross my heart, as we used to say at school. Then I'll come. You're likely to be pestered with me at any hour, and I'll be proud to have you drop down and visit me now and then too. Generally, I haven't anyone to talk to, but the first mate, bless his sociable heart, he's a mighty good listener and has forgot more than any McAllister of them all ever knew but he isn't much of a conversationalist. You're young and I'm old, but our souls are about the same age, I reckon. We both belong to the race that knows Joseph, as Cornelia Bryant would say, Cornelia's neighbor. The race that knows Joseph, puzzled Anne? Yes, Cornelia divides all the folks in the world into two kinds, the race that knows Joseph and the race that don't. If a person sort of sees eye to eye with you and has pretty much the same ideas about things and the same tastes in jokes, why then he belongs to the race that knows Joseph. Oh, I understand, exclaimed Anne, light breaking in upon her. It's what I used to call and still call in quotation marks, kindred spirits. Just so, just so, agreed Captain Jen. We're it, whatever it is. When you come tonight, I says to myself, I says, yes, she's of the race that knows Joseph. And mighty glad I was, for if it wasn't so, we couldn't have had any real satisfaction in each other's company. The race that knows Joseph is the salt of the earth, I reckon. I... I've looked up the reference to this, and apparently the, the reference that is being made here comes from Exodus chapter 1, where we read in Exodus chapter 1 that there arose a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph. So if you're of the race that knows Joseph, you're of the race that knows not only Joseph, but Joseph's God, and the way that Joseph's God provided for his people in the midst of that. The, the race that knows Joseph, or as Anne puts it, kindred spirits, soul mates, what we've got before us today is Jonathan and David, who appear to be and are introduced to us as exactly that. Now, I, I, you try and think of how we would phrase that in modern day terms, and maybe the, 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 the phrase that we're tempted to use is to say that they were best friends. Now, okay, if we want to use that term, it's got a lot of current loaded baggage on top of it. 
But if we understand them as best friends, what I would want us to understand from the very outset of talking about this today is that they're not best friends in the dyad sense, in the sense that it's just the two of them who are good buddies with one another. But instead, they are best friends in a triad, in a very deliberate and in a very clear triad. They are best friends in the Lord. They are soulmates in the Lord. And they're very conscious of it. And in everything that they say and do, the Lord is present between them. Now, we don't know where Jonathan was. We don't know what Jonathan was thinking, what was going on with Jonathan at the time of this particular battle, and then the situation with Goliath that we read of in chapter 17. We do know that back in an earlier time, in chapter 14, in the battle that is described there, we do know that Jonathan is the kind of guy who, with his armor bearer, looks at a garrison of the Philistines in a very particularly difficult place to access, a place that you wouldn't go up and attack. We do know of Jonathan from that. We do know his character and his faith there. And we see then in Jonathan almost the exact same words that David would use in his battle with Goliath. And if not the exact same words, certainly the exact same faith and the same spirit when he takes out this garrison of the Philistines. So Jonathan is there in some way at this point when he hears the report, when he hears of the faith when he hears of the words, when he hears of the actions of David, he recognizes in him, that's a kindred spirit. That's a guy I know. That, that's a guy I like. That's a, that's a man who I resonate with. And to show and to seal their friendship, the two of them enter into a covenant of friendship in the Lord, before the Lord, they enter into this covenant. And it's referenced for us. It's obviously very prominent. It's referenced for us in chapter 18, all of these that I read for us in, in chapter 20 again, and then in chapter 23, in chapter 23 as well. By, by covenantal oath, these two men bind themselves together in the Lord. Now, when we consider Scripture and we think about covenants in Scripture, there are all sorts of covenants that we find in Scripture. Uh, most prominently and perhaps most importantly is the covenant that God enters into with us. Blake's going to be preaching tonight on Genesis chapter 15 and that beautiful description in Genesis 15 of God's covenant with man. We also see in Scripture incidents, uh, times when men go in covenant with God where they pledge themselves unto the Lord and unto service to God. We likewise see covenants that exist between two men in Scripture that are, if you will, uh, not necessarily combatants, but are enemies to some extent. And they use a covenant in order to work out their differences and so that they can both continue on in uh, their lives. We see covenants in Scriptures between nations, we see in Scripture as well that marriage is a covenant, 
And in each case, when we look at these relationships and this use of this important term in Scripture, we learn a little bit. We learn a little bit about life, about love, and about commitment. And so what I want to do today as we look at these passages is to note some of the things that flow out of this covenantal friendship. Some of the things that we can see in the covenantal friendship between David and Jonathan. Things that I think can apply to us in two ways. One, they can apply to us in our relationships with one another. And secondly, and perhaps uh, more importantly, what they will help us to do is to understand more our relationship with the King, our Lord Jesus Christ. So first, let's, let's note the thing that is most obvious in what I've read for us in chapter 18, that particular passage that is printed in your bulletin. That is this. This covenant emerges from love, and it is made unto the increase of love. There's, there's no mincing of words. There's no ambiguity. There's no wondering why did they take the time to make this covenant with one another. The answer is as plain as Scripture can make it, verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. In that first verse of chapter 19, we read that Jonathan delighted in David. And then in chapter 20, verse 17, and Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. The commandment of our Lord Jesus Christ was that we should love one another. The example of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he did exactly that. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end, is what we read. And if we read, and we're not going to turn there right now, but if we were to read in the letters of John the Apostle, or if we were to take time and look at Paul, just a little bit we did there in Philippians and reading that earlier, we would see that this love that has been given to us in Christ, this love that we're then called to between each other, creates, or at least has the potential to create, deep friendships and mutual concern for one another within the church, within the body of Christ. And David and Jonathan are thus, for us, an example. You want to know what that looks like? When Jesus says, love one another, and so fulfill the law of God, or Paul says that in, Jesus, in taking the words of Jesus. If you want an example of what that looks like, you can look at this relationship between the two of them. Uh, there's plenty of things that we could look at and consider with them. I think there is one interesting note for us in our generation in that they take this, this relationship they have and by means of covenant, they formalize that relationship. They formalize their love. Now, we live in a time where perhaps the message is that when you take something as organic and as beautiful and as sweet as love and, and you formalize it, that maybe you're taking something away from love itself. Maybe, maybe if you make something formal like this, a, a covenant around it, you're taking away some of the vitality. 
some of the naturalness of it, some of the, the freedom that should be attached to love or the, the authenticity of it, where, where we would look at it and go, isn't love itself enough? Why would you need to put things around love, things that, that affirm what you feel for one another? Well, the Bible seems to suggest, seems to say that no, no, love in and of itself isn't enough. Not in this uh, unstable world of ours, not for unstable people like us. You need ties. You need bonds. You, you need tethers. You, you need to have moorings in this life. Even, or especially, with something as precious as love. And, and scripture provides those things for us. Marriage is exactly that. Church membership is exactly that. It's a formalizing of a bond of love. The, the sacraments, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, are exactly those things as well. They're, they're covenants by which love and commitment is made formal, and it is made specific for us, in which, by those covenants, we are bound not only to the Lord, but we are bound to one another. And that's why I read that section for us from the Westminster Confession on the Communion of Saints, where it says, by profession, the saints are bound to maintain a holy fellowship with one another in the worship of God and the other things that are then listed. We have bound ourselves to one another. We haven't just said, gee, it would be nice if all of the people in this room got together periodically and worshiped God or prayed for one another. That's not the only thing we've said. We have said that, I hope. But we've also said that, you know what? Our hearts are such and circumstances are such in this world that I need some, I need some ties on top of that. And, and the Lord says it, not just we say it, but the Lord has said that. And so Jonathan and David appreciate the reality of a complicated world and complicated hearts and, and that there need to be in the midst of that kind of complications something you can be sure of. Just something you can be sure of in the midst of this world. I, I think we do well to remember the precarious setting of this relationship, who these men are. One of them is the son of the king. And as the son of the king, Jonathan, of course, is the heir apparent. He's the one who would be, humanly speaking, most likely to succeed his father in being king over Israel. The other is the one who, maybe, maybe a little bit unclearly at the beginning of this, maybe it's, maybe it's not seen, it's seen for the reader completely clearly because we've seen in chapter 16 that God has clearly rejected Saul and clearly anointed David. But I don't know, and we don't know exactly how clear that was for everybody else at, at that particular time, but certainly by the end of the sections that I have read for us, it's clear that David is the one destined to take that kingship or to have that kingship applied to him. And 
So you've got a situation here with the one who would be king and the other one who is anointed with king. That's complicated. In fact, it's a recipe for disaster. You, usually people like that don't end up as best friends. What do you think the odds are that Biden and Trump end up as best friends? When all is said and done, what do you, what do you think the odds that are? I, I think the odds are probably low that that's ever going to happen. Well, that might be, humanly speaking, an equivalent here, that you're kind of looking at this going, okay, these, these guys are, are not likely to be best buddies. But the covenantal love that is, that is sealed here is designed to protect against the rivalry that would be most likely to arise between them and instead, in its place, to forge a fidelity and to forge a loyalty between the two of them. And so if love is the first thing in this covenant of friendship that we see, then the second would be fidelity or loyalty. How easy would it have been for these two men to have become rivals? Saul sees it. Saul gets it, right? He gets it not only on his own behalf, for, but he gets it for his son as well. David's dangerous. David's dangerous to all the plans. One writer puts it simply uh, by saying, Saul knows a rival when he sees one. And we'll get to this more next week. But the songs people sing drive him crazy because he sees in that there's a rivalry that exists. Covenantal friendship instead is pledged loyalty because the natural inclinations of the human heart are towards selfishness, or at least towards our own self-interest. We, we are naturally more interested in our own welfare than someone else's welfare, someone else's well-being. And, and if, you, if you look at, at this loyalty, in chapter 20, Jonathan says this to David. Jonathan says, may the Lord be with you. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. Jonathan is looking at the present circumstances and knows that things could get really dicey really fast. Houses could be at war very quickly. And so he says both for the present now and for the days to come, for the household after me, remember your steadfast love. And in his first statement, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, Jonathan is clear that he's not asking David just for a favor. He, he's not saying to him, listen, I, just do me a favor, would you? He's not asking David for merely human goodwill. Instead, what he's saying is, may the Lord be with you. Show to me, not, not your steadfastness, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. And this word here, this steadfast love of the Lord, is that great covenantal word. It's the word that means loving kindness or faithfulness or troth or fidelity or fealty. The, all those things are called up in this wor word. And Jonathan says, I want you to show me that. I'm not basing this request on who you are. I'm basing it on that's part of the character of God. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord in terms of how you treat me. And then in that second statement, we see how a divine attribute in covenant 
becomes a human covenantal attribute as well. Because the next phrase that he says is, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house. So at first it was the steadfast love of the Lord, show me that. And then he says, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house. So both things are going on here. The recognition that this belongs to God and also the recognition that it belongs to David derivatively as well. Jonathan here is the intended recipient. In this instance, he's the supplant. He's, he's the one saying, David, remember this for me. And then in chapter 23, Jonathan, based on this same loyalty, this same fidelity, is the one who is the giver of the encouragement, the giver of the fidelity to David. David's in the wilderness. Saul is pursuing him once again. And we read in chapter 23 that Jonathan comes to him and strengthens his hand in God. What a beautiful phrase. What a beautiful description. Jonathan comes to him and says, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. In a covenantal friendship, a friend comes alongside of you when you find yourself, through whatever circumstances, adrift. In the wilderness, alone, unafraid, a friend comes alongside to say to you and strengthen you in the hand of the Lord, your hand in the Lord, God is with you, I am with you, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And in our turn, we are either the giver of that kind of encouragement or the one who needs to receive it in terms of the circumstances of our life. The third element of covenantal friendship that we see here is sacrifice, the personal sacrifice that is involved going back to chapter 18. Jonathan, in making this covenant with David, strips himself of the robe that he is wearing. Now, just a little side note here for a moment, parenthetically, robes are important in this book. Uh, this book started off with uh, a mother who makes robes for her son, takes them over to Shiloh each year for him, right? Hannah makes a robe for Samuel. Each year brings him this new robe for the office to which he is being called and appointed. And then when uh, the, the kingdom is taken away from Saul, he pleads with Samuel, he reaches out, he tears his robe, and Samuel says, as you have torn that robe, so the Lord has torn the kingdom away from you. David will take a piece of Saul's robe. The robe is taken off of Jonathan. He takes it off of himself. He puts it on to David, the armor, the sword, the bow, the belt. And as the story unfolds, what becomes clear is that this is an act of self-divestiture and a corresponding investiture of David, uh, if you were here uh, two summers ago, recall the biblical theology of clothing and see how this fits into exactly that. One is being stripped or stripping himself in this case. The other is being clothed in exactly that. Jonathan is thus 
sacrificing on David's behalf. He's laying down his life, his position, and his claims on his position. And Jonathan to David is saying, in effect, listen, you must become greater, and I must become lesser. It may not look that way in terms of what the world thinks, but here's the reality. You've got to be greater, and I must be lesser. That's what covenantal friendship does. That's why Paul commends Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Philippians so much. Because he says these, these are men who are willing and have demonstrated the fact that they're willing to lay down their lives. They're willing to lay it down for me. They're willing to lay it down for you. They're willing to lay it down for the Lord. These are men who are ready to sacrifice for the sake of the friendship that has been established in the Lord. And we see the beauty of this same thing in the life of our Lord. To make us friends in incarnation and in crucifixion, he is willingly divested. That's what happens to Jesus in order to form this friendship. He willingly sets it aside as he is incarnate, and he is stripped as he is prepared to be crucified. And that is done so that his clothes, I'm going to reverse this in just a moment, so that his clothes might be given to us, we might be invested with royal robes and lifted up from the ash heap and given a seat with princes. That's from Hannah's song right at the beginning of this book. That's what she says. Here's one of the themes you're going to see throughout this book and throughout Scripture is those who are on the ash heap, stripped and naked, are the ones whom God is pleased to clothe, to put on Christ, to clothe them in the very best. And so in covenantal friendship, we see love, we see loyalty, we see this personal sacrifice, and lastly, we see security. Internally, and sometimes out loud, we all ask ourselves a variant of this question. What can I count on? Whom can I count on in this world? Is there anything firm? Is there anything stable? Is there anything that is secure when the sky grows dark, when the clouds roll in, when my heart sinks, and I am feeling that I am the one who is alone, that I am the one who is abandoned, or I am the one who's cornered? That's why these two men covenant together in friendship. Listen to these words that David shares with, uh, pardon me, that Jonathan shares with David in chapter 20, verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Why can you go in peace, David? It's not because, at the end of the day, I love you so much on my own. It's not because we have the same interests. It's not because we're both really good in battle. David, go in peace, because the Lord's between us. The triad 
comes out so clearly there. It's what determines the security of that friendship, of that covenant in this world, so that they then can have peace with one another in the midst of warfare, in the midst of wilderness for David, in the midst of being on the run. So these things, love, loyalty, sacrifice, and security, they should be the things that we pursue in our covenantal relationships with one another, our covenantal friendships. Now, you've heard me say this before. I, I am a realist with respect to that. I, I, I want to be clear that what we're saying here is not that with everybody in the church, we can have a relationship exactly like this. That's this close, that's this intense, that's this personalized. That's not the way things work in this world. That's not the way that we've been formed and fashioned. But at least with some, in general, with one another, but at least with some, may the Lord grant to us the ability to give and to receive that in our turn with those who are of the race that knows Joseph, our kindred spirits. But I, I trust that it is clear to us that no earthly relationship can live up to this. The, 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 the friends on, on this earth, they, they, they do fail us. I mean, the reality is this relationship didn't last for all of David's life because Jonathan dies. This, this didn't last forever. And our friendships do not either. And so as great as friendships are in this world and as much as we ought to pursue them, we should finally run to where Scripture runs, to the fact that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is the one who has friended us, Jesus, the faithful friend, who says, I have called you friends. And if we can simply now use this as a metaphor, this story as a metaphor, and, and reverse the positions that I described earlier. What it amounts to is that to come to Jesus for friendship is a renunciation of our own claims, of old loyalties that may exist in our lives. It's a, it's a renunciation of our pretensions, to come to Jesus is to come naked. It is to be stripped before him so that every heart is revealed and things are clear. It is to be stripped before him, but if you'll allow me just to go back to that series from the summer, just remember Eustace and the dragon scales. It actually is needful that God strip us. It is needful that those claws get into us and undo that which we can't even undo ourselves because we are so intertwined in our hearts and they're so wicked and we're unable to discern them. We're divested and we're stripped and then it becomes the, the, the Lord's pleasure to grant us the strength to say, keep doing that in repentance. Keep putting off, keep taking off that old man and it's his good pleasure to say, and now... I've got the best robes for you. I've, I've saved the best clothes for you, and you are now clothed in Christ. We give up our claims to kingship in our lives. We come before the Lord Jesus 
and say, I covenant in love with you as you have covenanted with me. And he clothes us and allows us to become his friend. I pray that we can have great earthly friendships like Jonathan and David, but more so that we would have a friend that faileth never. On his deathbed, Jonathan Edwards, having bid farewell to his daughter, who was with him at the time and through her to others, including uh, his wife of uh, what he described even at that moment, as his wife of an uncommon union. He looked around and he said, now, where is Jesus of Nazareth, my never failing friend? May that be so of us as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the friendship that you have extended to us. We thank you for the evidences of that that we see in this world with our brothers and sisters. Help us as your people in the first place to be faithful to you, our never failing friend, and then through that to be faithful and true to one another as well in good times and in bad with words of either encouragement or exhortation, building up whatever needs be there for the moment, Lord. Help us to give and to receive in our turn. I pray this in Jesus' name.